Hello, welcome to Full Circle with Garland. I'm a leader in the DEI space and have spent 20 years of my career in human resources. I've been having meaningful conversations about career development with my friends and colleagues, many of whom are rarely heard on stages and podcasts. I am excited to bring you their stories each week. I will be sharing how their diverse backgrounds have shaped their work, the lessons in their career highs and lows, and the importance of recognizing the full circle moments in life. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this week's interview. Welcome to Full Circle with Garland. Today's guest is the illustrious Hallette English <laughs> Dixon. She is the executive director for the Marshall Bennett Institute of Real Estate and chair of the Real Estate College at the Heller College of Business um, at Roosevelt University in Chicago. She's had a great career prior at PGIM Real Estate, formerly Prudential Real Estate Investors. Uh, she is, I think, a well-known entity, particularly in the Midwest region. It's such a pleasure to have her on the call today. Um, I could keep going because she's got a lot of, I'd say, accolades between her relationships with um, ULI and the Women's Leadership Initiative, Crew, um, former president of Crew Network, um, past chair of the Crew Network Foundation, um, just a really, I'd say, strong background and super happy to have her here today because I think she's got so much to share and my hope is that you've got so much to learn or at least be inspired by. So thank you so much for joining me today, Colette. Thanks, Garland. I'm really excited to be here and I'm really glad that you did not read anything more about me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the internet's there. You just can <laughs> click on some buttons and read it yourself. Um, I'm just giving the high level scoop. So glad, so glad that you can make it today. So I invited you to the podcast today because um, you're always on my LinkedIn feed. Like I, I see certain people's faces and names pop up a lot and yours is one of them. And so I had to reach out to you um, through one of my colleagues in Chicago um, and it's been great because our initial conversation to prepare for this was just very much like alignment of, oh, this person's exactly who I thought they were. Like, you know, you meet some people and you're like, oh, you're nothing like I thought you were. <laughs> and then you meet some people and you're like, oh my gosh, you're exactly who I thought you were. So um, you are exactly that. Uh, just a wealth of knowledge, very just kind, bubbly. You seem very knowledgeable about not just commercial real estate, but I think your passion for um, helping more diverse students get into this industry. Um, so I'm happy to have you on so we can talk a little bit more about that. But before we go there, mm -hmm. um, I try to start everything with, you know, who were you before you became the Colette English Dixon, right? Oh, yeah. Um, upbringing, you know, kind of your family, what kind of has helped you to get where you are today? Wow, Garland, it's hard to start off with all of that after, after what you said, but I have to say, I'm really glad that so far I'm who you think I should be because that's yeah. actually really important. Um, yeah, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, it was a really interesting time in Cleveland. Um, my parents came from a small 
uh, coal mining community in southern West Virginia. So, you know, we definitely came from blue collar backgrounds. Um, and when my parents decided to leave West Virginia and, and went to Cleveland, part of the Great Migration, yeah. it was uh, an interesting time in that city. And we wound up, uh, fortunately, being able to move to, you know, the middle class neighborhood on the east side. But the thing that probably didn't really resonate with me at the time, but has definitely influenced a lot of who I am at this point, is that I remember when we moved on to the street, which had nice, nice little brick bungalows in the yard and all that stuff, we were the second black family on the block. And shortly after that, probably before I got through second grade, um, the block was completely black, um, which was that white flight thing that so many of us, um, especially in the Midwest and the North, kind of saw happening, although you weren't really sure as a kid exactly what was going on with that, right? But because of the people who moved into the community at the time, and I think that um, I think back to Isabel Wilkerson's book, um, and you know, it that generation of first round immigration came into those communities with all those same values that they grew up with, and they really instilled those in us as their children. Um, you know, the first generation to actually live kind of in the black middle class in the Midwest, and my parents were always into you're going to get an education. Oh, by the way, when the streetlights come on, you better be close by. Uh, you were raised by a village of people who were very, very focused on instilling the right sort of values and the right sort of understanding of what's important in the world um, into their children. And, you know, that really was a lot of who I became. And my parents did not go to college. Uh, my mother actually went back to school when I was in high school. She went back to college and got her undergraduate degree when I was in high school and then got her MBA the year before I got mine, which was just like, wow, you know, there was just this huge thing going on here. Yeah. What are those values that you're, you said, you know, there's some values that, you know, parents, your parents and just parents um, who were on that block instilled in you, of course, the value of education, but um, what other values could you kind of expound it, on? You know, it was being honest, being, um, willing to admit your mistakes. Because I mean, all of us knew if you actually unfortunately told like a, something that was less than the truth, you knew about it. It was like the whole world knew that you knew about it. And it was about being a positive contributor to the world. So you're gonna get your education, you're gonna get a job, you're gonna be a positive contributor, you are not gonna be whatever, whatever. And my parents actually sacrificed a lot to make sure that I was in the path of opportunities that could help me be all that. And I think that really impressed me later in life when I became really aware of you know, colleagues who maybe didn't have as strong of that familial support and how challenging it has been for them to do or be what they've wanted to be in the world. So. I realized that it was my job. And being an only child, there was that pressure of being the only one. So my parents were like, we're going to make it work with this one because this is the best. One. This is it. This is our chance. Um, and it was something I knew that it was important to them. And it was important to 
my life as a black person to get the best education that I could and to get myself a job. You went to school to get a job, not necessarily to pursue your passion, right? And to be that person that they expected me to be. There was a real sense of um, responsibility to match what they expected and what they sacrificed to give me the opportunity to do and to experience so that I could be all of that. Yeah. I know. I know that feeling only child over here too. I, I, this is the one we got, we got to put everything in this one. Um, so I totally get that. Um, and there's that fear of like disappointing them, right? You're just like scared to death, but you're going to disappoint them. And I was really relieved to think that maybe I didn't. Um, but it was oh, no. a lot of pressure. I don't think they could say that at this point. Um, so you went to college and decided to major in finance. What was it that kind of helped you to figure out that path for yourself? Well, actually, I went to college because I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And for some reason, I don't even know why. I didn't even know a single lawyer. I guess maybe I grew up on Perry Mason. I don't know where this came from, but it was like I wanted to be a lawyer. And I didn't want to be just like any lawyer. I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. This is totally fictitious stuff. I have no idea where it came from. So, you know, I had to get a business degree, right? I wanted to be a business lawyer and um, chose to pursue a finance degree at the University of Notre Dame, which was another experience and another podcast discussion in and of itself. But uh, that really, surprisingly, gave me options because as I thought I wanted to go to law school, and a lot of people still think I'm a lawyer for some reason, maybe I'm just too conservatively, I'm not sure what that's about, but it gave me a chance when I decided senior year that I really wasn't ready to go to law school to use that business major, which also had a little bit of a minor in accounting, to find myself a job, to give me that break. So I thought I would graduate, I got this job, And two years later, I expected like in two years, I was off to law school. Uh, What I didn't realize was that I had stumbled into an industry that I did not know existed. And that I think most people were totally, especially most people of color, were totally clueless about by stumbling into a role with what was then called the real estate investment department of the Prudential Insurance Company of America, which was this great lofty name. And my parents were so excited because it was, you know, a known brand and it was this big company and they were like, but you're in real estate. So what do you do? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not planning on being here for very long. So I don't know that it really matters. Well, you know, that story totally went sideways. Um, I didn't go to law school. I wound up getting my master's at night. And fortunately, that was back in the day when Prudential actually helped pay for your graduate school. Um, So with their assistance, I got my MBA in finance also um, and stayed in the path in an industry that, you know, until I got that job, I didn't even know existed. You rarely hear about this anymore, where someone actually has a career in a company, stays there, but then, of course, moves around um, to different opportunities. Uh, And I mean, with a big brand like Prudential and probably lots of opportunities available, how did you chart your course or did it just kind of like, I learned this and then got super interested in that. And then next thing you know, I was doing this. And 
Then they said they needed help in this. And I raised my hand, like, how did that go for you? Because I've, I've heard all kinds of stories. And so I'm super interested in hearing yours. I'm going to have to admit to the ultimate career faux pas. I had no idea what to do about managing my career. You know, as I said, my parents were blue collar. My mother went to college when I was in high school. The whole idea of your owning your career and making, you know, decisions or negotiating for opportunities or raising your hand for that new, that new job down, you know, down the hall, that was never something that was even talked about. I didn't hear about it in college. My parents definitely didn't do it. My parents were of that generation of, you have a really good job. So you you keep your head down, you work hard, and you keep that job, especially when you're in a platform that has this giant brand thing, right? So the whole idea of kind of raising my hand or raising my head and going, oh, you know, I really want to do that. I didn't know you could do that. And I lucked out. I mean, fundamentally, I lucked out. I wound up, you know, starting my career in Atlanta, in the Southeast, um, right as the Southeast was really starting to get traction and to grow into the sort of economic powerhouse that it has become. And being with a platform like Credential, which at the time really didn't know that it wanted to become a global investment manager in a city like Atlanta that didn't really know it wanted to become like this economic force in the Southeast. I was so fortunate. Time and space worked for me. Um, I was laughing. I was looking at a colleague's uh, note today on LinkedIn. And how many more cycles do you have in you? As there was a headline saying a lot of, you know, longtime owners of real estate are going, I don't have another cycle in me. I'm selling. I actually sat there and started thinking about how many cycles have I been through? And the number is like six. I mean, that's just insane. So I was just fortunate, but I'm going to also say that that lack of understanding about owning my career and being able to raise my hand and say, you know, I want to do this job this time probably limited the opportunities that I got. So I didn't know which ones would run to, if I did that job, it would lead to that role, which would lead to that path and that promotion or that responsibility or whatever. And When I finally realized that that was important, it was far later in my career. And so I know I missed some opportunities, but I did get a chance to grow with the company at a pace that seemed like it was okay, I guess, until I decided it wasn't anymore. And I had a chance with growing with the company to fortunately do well enough that when reasonable opportunities came along, I got a chance to flow with those. But I do know in my heart of hearts that if I had known about owning my career and had known about how many people had the ability to use the system to their advantage, I might have ultimately made it to that, you know, managing director or that, you know, C-suite route at the right time in my career. So there was that, you know, longevity was great, did a lot of fun stuff did things nobody in my family ever could have imagined to do. I mean, playing Monopoly with other people's money is exactly what we did. And it was exciting, but it probably wasn't as much of a um, truly managed career as I hope many people do now. Yeah. So 
Looking back, um, what would you say was a strength that you've honed and that's been a superpower for you? Wow. You know, the superpower language is kind of scary because I'm afraid if I say the wrong thing, it's going to come out like crazy. But I think the skill that I managed to develop was to be, I think there are two things and came together to be a superpower. I'm not really sure. But one is that I'm pretty straightforward. Um, I'm not big on playing games in my personal life or in my business world. And so I think that people came to believe that I was dependable, that I would do what I said I would do, um, that I would not, you know, color the story to get myself into a uniquely advantaged spot. It was about, I can do this. I can't do this. I would like to do this with you, but if you can't, I got this. I mean, it's, it was just, I felt I needed to be really clear because being an African-American woman in the space and often the only one in the room, um, very often the only person of color in the room, let alone the only woman in the room, I felt that I had to not, I guess I was never a very demure person, but I always felt that I needed to be honest. But then on the other hand, I think something I also worked at very hard um, developing was being able to take complicated concepts and break them down into their basic points so that people understood what I was trying to explain to them without being overwhelmed by the, you know, making of the watch rather than just telling the time. And with that, I think the straightforwardness and the ability to break down complicated concepts um, allow people to get comfortable that I knew what I was talking about in addition to I was being honest. And that, I think, helped me a lot when I especially stepped into the role in Chicago on the new investment side at Prudential. When I moved up here from Atlanta and no one knew who I was. And I was truly an unicorn in the acquisitions new investment side of investment management. And I had to convince people that I knew what I was talking about and that they could trust me. And that maybe together created a really strong um, kind of superpower presence for me when I engaged with new people within the industry or new opportunities. And I have um, totally relied on those two skills to get me through a lot of things. And I, I think it works well. At least people know where I'm coming from. I love a straight shooter, somebody who can tell the truth and tell you exactly what you need to be doing. I mean, it does instill trust and confidence because then uh, people know you're not disingenuous or telling them what they want to hear, especially when it comes to, you know, investments, like no one wants to just be sold to, so to speak. Yeah. But you know, but the other side, as you totally, I'm sure, understand Garland, because I think you are very, you have some very similar traits to mine. Not everybody takes those really well. No. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know some people really do have a little bit of a challenge of your being too straightforward with them um, or, you know, trying to, um, not, I don't, I don't think that you're mansplaining. I mean, that's not it. It's just trying to make sure that everybody's seeing the same thing you're seeing, even if they disagree with you, at least understand what I'm seeing from over here. And then we can go from there. But being straightforward, it's amazing 
how many folks just don't get that as being a positive. They would prefer things to be soft pedal to them. And I'm not really that good at that. Yeah, I can, I can relate. Um, so let's talk about moving into higher education and then deciding to pivot into something. Because when we spoke, you said, you know, there was a point where I realized I knew I was good at this but it wasn't feeling good for me anymore. So yeah. what was it about that time that let you know, it like led you to know, okay, I need to make a change. I need to do something different. What were you seeking um, that wasn't there? So as I mentioned, I came late to the revelation that one should try to manage one's own career. And I had been um, here in Chicago tooling away in my trusty job until the GFC hit. And when it became apparent that the recession was going to be significant enough that we were not going to continue investing new money, the, uh, the powers that be came to me and said, you know, I think you need to go back to a job doing kind of a job that you did before, which was dispositions of investments. And the best thing about that was that it kept me really busy during the recession the worst thing about that is that it put me back in a role that I had, I had left many years before. And it reminded me why I didn't really like the job. And one was that it was a lot of work. Uh, my colleague and I would sell up to $3 billion worth of assets um, in a year. And we were just churning it. But it, we were good at it. And that made people think it was simple. And it wasn't. It was incredibly time consuming and very complicated in some situations. And I was like, I didn't really like this job the last time I had it. So I don't think I want to do this forever. And, but when I started to look around at other potential roles uh, within PGM or PREI, as it was called at the time, there really wasn't anything there. And my opportunity was to kind of continue to do what I was doing or not. And I decided that not was really the best plan for me for a lot of reasons, many of which we just should not go through on this podcast. But um, it was just time for me to try to take that brand that I had hopefully developed in the industry as someone who was smart and knew what she was doing. Um, my image of, you know, being a black woman in the space who could actually contribute and add value to a platform and just go, okay, fine. I'm just going to jump. I just, I have no other way to do this. I just have to jump. I did not expect that where I would land up was in academia. Uh, it was a, a kind of a slog trying to figure out, okay, now that you've done this, Colette, what are you going to do? What are the options? What are the things that really excite you? Because I was at a point in my career that doing something that really wasn't interesting, just didn't seem like a move worth making. When this role came along at the Institute, um, it was kind of a curious time. It was spring of 2017 after we'd had that crazy fourth quarter in 2016. And I was like, legacy. It, it's not like, you know, ego legacy. It's like, what am I leaving after all this work that I've done in the sense industry? And what can I do to have a longer term impact on what happens here? And that 
ability to influence it through the development of talent hit me as being an incredible convergence opportunity. I could take all of that multiple decades of industry experience and the relationships that I had tried to build and the knowledge that I hoped I developed and added it into this program and hopefully help develop more diverse talent for the industry. Because as you know, Garland, diversity in the commercial real estate industry has been a challenge since jump. I mean, it just has never really had the sort of traction and you know, stickiness that it should have. And we've been talking about diversity in commercial real estate for 30 plus years. And strangely enough, you know, back to kind of my beginning at Peru, Peru's real estate department was far more diverse when I got started here now 40 plus years ago than it is today. Wow. And that means that there's something that has happened in the industry that its ability to attract, retain, develop, and promote diverse, ta- excuse me, diverse talent has gone away or it's gone sideways, or I'm not really sure why that has happened that way. So coming here, a diverse program, graduate school program um, was intriguing to me. And so I thought I could come in and help build it to the next level. It was almost 20 years old when I showed up. It'll be 20 years old next year. I've been here now three and a half years. And I think we're making some traction. I think that right now, given the heightened awareness of the lack of diversity in the commercial real estate space in particular, uh, gives us some unique opportunities to talk with industry about how to expand the tent and to provide access and awareness of the potential of careers in this space to people who don't see it otherwise. Because that's having, you know, lucking out to have people just fall into it like I did and many of my, you know, age cohort did is not how this industry creates sustainable diversity. And we've got to do it differently. And so I'm very excited to be in a space that I can participate in that and have a conversation with industry leaders about ways that we can do things differently and have better outcomes. So that's been the great outcome of this shift for me. So I recently, someone asked me to join a, um, a committee, a task force for a university, a business school, um, because they have a, you know, again, looking forward, realizing they don't have much diversity in their business school, yet alone their real estate school, and what they can be doing in order to change that. Um, given your, I'd say, three years in your current role, in addition to your wealth of experience, what would you say in terms of advice that business schools or real estate schools should be doing differently that they either aren't doing now or missing, missing a piece of that puzzle? I think one of the challenges that higher ed has right now is how it kind of sorts itself um, as to, you know, we are Ivy, we are, you know, just sub Ivy, we are all these things. And with that comes a perception on their student profile. And the more elite they are, the more challenging it is to find diversity in their student body. 
So if we can't get them to find creative ways to market themselves to some incredibly bright black and brown people who are in high schools around the country to give them the support to be successful in those environments, that school is never going to have a diverse student population to deliver to anybody's industry, right? And one of the biggest challenges that I think higher ed has is how inhospitable it often seems to be for students of color. And it's a chicken or egg problem. You know, how do you get it to be more hospitable if you don't have more in the room? I'm not exactly sure how you break the code on that, but they need to acknowledge that that's sort of perception, in addition to how crazy expensive higher ed is right now, um, is going to be a limitation. But if you're with a specific program, say you're with a real estate school, and you are open to kind of building that awareness, which is what I think we all need to do right now, there are opportunities to partner with programs that are supporting you know, strong, bright, black and brown children to you know, aspire to these sort of potential career paths, and you're engaging with them in high school, in their, you know, in their ninth and 10th grade before they get themselves cast into a pathway of what they want to do to open their eyes to the potential, and then hopefully attract them to your program because they've seen you, you've engaged with them. They, you know, there's a comfort that they're willing to step into and explore with you. And that's where I believe the industry as a whole and um, higher ed as a part can look to break the dam of um, awareness around business opportunities, um, potential career paths, and especially in the real estate space, which from a distance is even more difficult for people to understand because it's not like going to the bank. People know what it's like to be, you know, what does a banker maybe look like, right? What does a lawyer maybe look like? Maybe you run into an accountant because your parents have one. I mean, some of these things are a little bit easier to get your arms around until you get to something that's really vague, but yet everywhere, like real estate. And I try to talk to young people. We go to these high school things and like, you know, I spent my entire career in the commercial real estate space and they're like, commercial real estate space, uh, real estate, houses, housing, but not houses. Um, it's all that other stuff that you see around you. It's, oh, by the way, if I want to just say real estate is the built environment, it's the park you go to, it's the building you live in, it's everything around you. It helps them get to that. And then maybe that chink in the dam is like, oh, maybe we can get something in there and talk to them more about it and broaden how they can see the potential. Colleges need to do it. Specific academic programs can do that really far more easily than most institutions, I think. Um, and then just industry partnering to go with industry partners into these schools, into these programs to help build the sort of relationships that hopefully will help build a pipeline. Because it's not about the job availability. It's about getting them in the funnel and getting them through the funnel so that they're available and ready to do the jobs. And that's, well, that's where we've got to start much earlier than when they show up on campus their freshman year. Yeah, definitely. 
So you mentioned a book about Isabel Wilkerson, and we talked about this before because um, you read her first book, The Warmth yeah. of Our Sons, and I read her second book, um, Cass, yes. Yes. Discontents of Our is it History. I'm totally getting that mm-hmm. probably wrong. Um, so what other books do you like to read? Or what other books would you say have influenced you or informed your leadership style, how you kind of, you know, continue to see the world? You know, I have to think, um, I remember, I used to read a ton. Uh, it used to be, you get on a plane, you read a book. Then it reached a point where I got on a plane, and I fell asleep. And then I had <laughs> time to read, you know, before I went to bed or something like that. Um, as life got more complicated, it was harder to stay up on them. I, the last few months, I have just been consumed with reading books, you know, like Eric Michael Dyson or oh, yes. um, reading Ta-Nehisi Coates. I've, I've kind of been in this space and I know why I'm in this space. Uh, there's just been so much of it, you know, so much going on right now that trying to settle my head around some of these issues or some of the ways to think about them has driven me to read a genre of, of literature right now that is probably not the most relaxing. I really need to find a book to get my head into something else because I started actually I picked up. I'm actually I'm doing it. I'm fortunate enough to be doing a little bit of an interview with Natalie Moore from WBEZ. Uh, NPR network here. And um, her book that came out in 2016 is about the Chicago South Side. I'm reading that right now. And I'm like, this is, this is insane. I need to find like, a really casual book <laughs> that can get my head kind of out of this space. Yeah. It's um, hard though. I'm the same way. I've been reading a lot of these deep and profound books. Like, and then the ones that I find, though, at least the one that I'm, I am like maybe four chapters away from finishing right now is, is Start With Your Why by Simon Sinek. It's really like a marketing book, like this idea of, you know, understanding the why. And so that is to me light reading because that's not as, you know, all consuming as, you know, and aggravating. How, how to be a anti-racist, <laughs> yes. like, which I've had on my book list from the beginning of the summer and haven't finished yet because it's, it's like, uh, <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, um, I'm sorry, but, Garland. That one is not going to make the book list. No, I, I know. It's, it's, it's the community read for my daughter's school, which Got I'm it. like, oh, uh, but I did read stamp from the beginning audiobook, which was much more oh. like it's, it's the young readers version. And it's much more great uh, because it's, it's, it's got a, really more contemporary vibe for the kids. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, I think Netflix provides that for me. Like if I'm not reading something super intense, then I go watch something super silly on Netflix. So that's, that's where my brain turns off and watches total junk. But yeah. <laughs> okay, so I go to Netflix and I'm, you know, I'm churning through all of the different options, right? So I went through this whole series where I am like looking at all the documentaries. So I've gone through Quincy Jones. I've gone through Miles, you know. I, I mean, all of the musical ones that were going on, which have all of them, most of them being African-American performers, I have to admit, this, I'm in a rut, have some moment where I'm like totally ticked off about something that happened to them. Or... I, I look at 
Watchmen on HBO. Oh. I finally, I finally did that one, and I'm just like, this is this is a I had a really bad rut. Now I just was, I was just gifted Shelley Archambault's unapologetically ambitious. Oh. And um, I recently heard an interview she did with a friend of mine, Jenny Clark, on Fifth Dimensional Leadership. Uh, just plugging another podcast. But Shelley was one of her first guests. And I was just intrigued by what she's looking to relate around being a woman in business, in, in commerce, um, who is like, I have goals. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to work through all of this stuff. And I, that's the next one on my list. As soon as I finish Natalie's book, I am moving directly into Shelley's because I think that'll be my light moment. Because if I go back to Netflix and pick up another thing like, or go to HBO and watch Lovecraft, I'm, this is not going to be a good outcome for this no, year. <laughs> no, you've got to watch something like frivolous, like a, a makeover show or, a, you know, oh, I can't do or something <laughs> like more relaxed. Well, you know, there's, there's also, well, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I vacillate between something. You remember the, the series Girlfriends? Yes, I love that show. It's back so, on. So it's, it's on. back on. Yeah. I just got back into it. I'm like season four right now. And oh, I, wow. don't, I don't even think I remember they had eight seasons. I didn't but, either. Um, it's been hilarious to watch again because, one, I'm in a different part of my life than yeah. I was when I watched it the first time. But two, it's just still so relevant, so good, so funny. Um, so if you want some good, funny, feel good, not too hard, you've seen it before, but you don't remember any of it. Right. Um, I'd suggest that one. Okay. Okay. (laughs) It's consistent. It's kind of in a theme. So, um, kind of, but it's more, it's more lighthearted. It's more lighthearted. Cool. Um, Thank you for reminding me about that. Yeah. So I'm going to shift now into kind of the next thing, what you're involved with, what, you know, are any kinds of goals or things that you're kind of looking at in terms of next forward, now that we're owning who we are and what we want to do, asking for what we want. What does that, what does that look like? Cause I know you're super involved with a variety of organizations. Um, and I so am. can we talk a little bit about that? So I have always been um, very involved in industry organizations, uh, such as Crew. Uh, Crew Atlanta was my founding um, membership, and I was one of the early, 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 early members. And then, of course, when I moved to Chicago, you know, call number two was how do I get engaged with Crew Chicago that led me on another path, which I have to honestly say, and I'm just going to put a plug out there for Crew. There are a lot of women of color in this industry who haven't really felt like crew's been a space for them. And I get it. It's the same thing that we're struggling with finding the space in the industry as a whole. But sometimes you have to be a little selfish. And I really felt that um, my participation in crew both did some incredible things for my career. And that came with my commitment to being in leadership on a national level and the kind of profile that it brings just because of the scale of the organization. But it also was an opportunity to help develop my quote-unquote leadership skills in a safe space, which is kind of hard to find. And to the extent that you're kind of 
late, early to mid career, and you're just trying to find the space to maybe test your wings on some things, I think Crew is an organization to consider. So I, I can't say enough for Crew. It's really just been a huge part of my career um, since the beginning. But I'm also involved in the Women's Leadership Initiative, which is part of ULI. And that is uh, an interesting uh, parallel to Crew because ULI really looked at WLI as its way to help grow its presence of women in its organization and to support many of the same things that Crew said it was about. So sitting on both of those is kind of fun, but it's all about gender parity in this industry. It doesn't really do much with respect to ethnicity and cultural racial parity, but it definitely has helped facilitate what I think has been a, a significant improvement in generally in women in the industry. Now, if we could just get more women into the C-suites and get this pay disparity taken care of, we'll be doing a lot. Um, I am also actively engaged in the International Women's Forum, uh, which is a global platform of women from all parts of the economy, including government and uh, public private sector and, uh, you know, education and business and law and all that thing. And it's an incredible group. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a member of the IWF Forum in D.C. He's thinking about the sort of women that that organization um, attracts is incredibly impressive. I am uh, involved with Shy Acre, which is Chicago African-Americans in commercial real estate. A new group we started about two years ago, started with a colleague of mine, Graham Grady, uh, who's a lawyer at Taft. And it was about introducing the African-Americans in commercial real estate in Chicago to each other. I mean, I went to the first event. There were maybe 200 people in the room. I only knew like half of them. It's like, where, how? That's an interesting dynamic that I think many of us need to think about. We get in these silos in the pieces of the industry where we are operating and do not always cross paths with people in other parts of the industry. There are great opportunities to do business together or to just engage and help mentor each other uh, that we're missing out on. And I strongly encourage people of color in this space to find an opportunity to create a place. Um, I think in LA you have, is it, a, it actually is it's an acre. A, it's A-Rep LA. A-Rep LA. And there's yeah. one in DC and there's and one in Boston. And we need those. And I mean, every major city should have one of those so that we can engage with each other because there are some incredible opportunities that we're missing out on because we're either too small alone or we don't have the connections that get us in front of that RFP opportunity. We need to take advantage of the potential right now in partnering um, in every city where there are people of color in this industry. So, you know, I do that. And then there's, you know, the occasional something else. You know, I'm on the advisory board for a, a private investment, real estate, a multi-housing investment platform here. Um, I'm on the board for the Community Investment Corp, which works on neighborhood preservation and affordable housing. Uh, I work on HPET, which is the Housing Partnership Equity Trust, a non-traded REIT that's into the preservation and creation of affordable workforce housing in the United States. I have a few things that have become passions, um, diversity, and affordable housing. So I have been engaged in a lot of those right now. So I'm actually a little 
I'm doing too much, actually. You're, you're having me think say, about this. It's like, I'm doing too much. What is that? I'm like, oh my, I'm like, and you sleep when, and you eat when. <laughs> well, you know, I've also realized that you find time for things that are important to you. And um, if you're struggling to find time to get it done, then that may be telling you something. Yeah, totally. Um, so... What are, well, I mean, I don't even know if I should ask you what are the next things. I mean, maybe for you, it's like, I think I'm at, I'm at capacity. The next thing I need to do is take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't sleep as much as I should. Um, the next thing, I, you know, I don't know what the next thing is. I think that I've been in this industry a long time in one way or another. I'm probably reaching that point where I'm getting to that, that last quarter of my career and it's hard to imagine what opportunities there could be that maybe grow out of something else I'm doing. I always want to be in a place where what I am doing is adding value to the advancement of an issue, the correction of a problem, um, the support of a need. And that can come from a lot of different places. And fortunately, like we said, real estate's everywhere. So if, I've, if the uh, experience I have in this industry helps open that door, all the better. But I, I think until that kind of, you can do this better over here, opportunity rolls around. I'm probably, probably where I am right now. Okay, perfect. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, I am going to wrap up with a few things. I've got two things I ask everybody, right, as I end their session, which is okay. inclusion in my industry looks like. Inclusion in your industry looks like opportunity that is evenly and appropriately shared with those who are prepared, educated, and interested in the opportunity, um, regardless of who they are, where they come from. Um, it's about not just being invited to the dance. It's about being invited to dance. And so I want everybody to have a chance to dance as much as they want to. Perfect. Um, what does life look like coming full circle to you? Full circle. Somehow, I think I'm reaching that point, right? Um, I've had a lot of opportunity come my way. Um, some of it totally unexpected and absolutely unplanned for. And I think the 360 is my helping position other people for those opportunities and helping them be ready for them and open to them so that they can have the life that they want to have. I hear all of that. Um... And I'm just, I'm so glad you are where you are. I feel like it's so important to see your representation in every sense of the word, uh, not Thank just you. for the people that you, of course, work with at Roosevelt University, but I think in terms of this industry um, and just as somebody who is doing it, you know, not just talking about it, but doing it. So oh. I, I super appreciate you being on my podcast today. Um, I will put all of your information in the show notes. She of okay. course can be found on LinkedIn because that's where I found her. But, um, I mean, between ULI crew and a whole host of other organizations she's a part of, um, please, 
please um, show some love to to you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Garland. It's been a blast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend. You can find me on Instagram at Full Circle with Garland. And if you'd like to be a guest, go to garlandfuller.com. Thank you for listening and sharing your time with me. I hope this next week helps you to recognize the full circles in your own life. Bye-bye.